It is good to see each of us able to come back out again this, this Sunday evening. We're always blessed to be able to gather, to assemble in the name of the God of heaven, and to, of course, do that with a firm desire in our heart to offer to Him that which He has said that He wants, a worship service pleasing and acceptable in His sight. I realize that, as you probably have already looked at the wall behind me and maybe even saw it in the bulletin, we're going to begin a very brief series of lessons this evening touching a very prominent subject, touching a very needful subject, it would seem, at least in many cases, a subject likely of great interest to all of us, finances. Now, I realize there are those who are certainly far greater experts in that than almost any of us would be. But you'll notice part of that title points us not to financial advice from me or even from you. We're going to open the Word of God, and we're going to, in fact, listen with some degree of attention to some wise advice from the wisest man and arguably one of the richest men that ever lived. As we do that, I hope that we'll each be benefited and that we'll be able to, in fact, perhaps develop some new ways of thinking and some new ways of activity toward the finances that God has blessed us to enjoy and that He has blessed us to have. As we start all of this, the opening slide is perhaps, again, not anything terribly surprising, not anything terribly shocking. Economic matters, financial matters, if you please, are some of the most pressing, some of the most oft-occurring things that cross our minds. For after all, if you don't have the funding to pay the necessary bills, it weighs upon one's heart. How am I going to pay for the heat bill? How will I take care of the other necessary arrangements of the bills in my life? To be sure, those certainly would weigh heavily upon one. But I would offer even beyond that. Isn't it true that finances, economic matters, are a central feature of the business of our government? having to, in fact, weigh out what money comes in versus what is expended. And frankly, our government has a liberty to do what we as families cannot. They can take in far less money than they spend. You and I know we are not at that liberty. But not only that, you may note this. Not only is finances and spending, of course, important in a large sense, I've already noted the individual consideration there. And as we're about to see in this brief series of lessons that I'm envisioning at least to last tonight and two more after it, we're primarily going to focus on the book of Proverbs. We're going to revisit that Old Testament book of wisdom and allow it to at least present us some matters that can be helpful, quite beneficial in touching the issues of finances. As we do all of that, let's close that slide like this. It would perhaps be fair to say that many times these matters in finances can really damage one's health. It brings stress, it brings worry, it brings anxiety. If again, we may find ourselves in that situation. And so this biblical advice can really help not only in matters of finances, but maybe even indirectly in many other arenas of life. Without any further ado... Let's then at least speak briefly about the characteristic of the one who is going to give us this advice. Now, I say that carefully. I've already mentioned the book of Proverbs, and it was Solomon who wrote that book. And yet, as we ask, so what credentials does Solomon have that would make it reasonable to expect that he would be able to speak with authority concerning matters of finances? 
After all, you probably wouldn't come and ask me such questions. I'm not an expert other than what the Bible would say. So what position does Solomon have that would allow us comfort to ask him? Well, let's start like this. When David passed away, it was his son Solomon, one of the sons of Bathsheba, I've asked you to notice rather carefully, that was the hand-selected one to reign next. In other words, he was going to be the successor to David. Now, you and I remember that although there was one of the other sons that attempted to take that throne, David, before he died, affirmed that it was indeed to be Solomon. And with that in mind, look at what quickly followed. In 1 Kings chapter 3, right after David died, Solomon was offered the following rather amazing set of choices. God came to him at Gibeon by nine in a dream and said, Ask what I shall give thee. He gave Solomon the opportunity to ask whatever he wanted. There were very few times in the Word of God when God offered an opportunity like that to anybody, and yet He did it to Solomon. Solomon could have asked for long life. He could have asked for military victory over his enemies. He could have asked for wealth untold. He could have asked for all of that, I suppose. And yet, as you and I revisit 1 Kings chapter 3, we notice that the thing that Solomon asked for was for a wise and an understanding heart. He looked with some care upon the position that he occupied. I'm going to have to judge this, thy great people, and I want a wise and an understanding heart that will permit me to do that judiciously and in a way consistent with the Word of God. God was so pleased with that choice. He, in fact, so highly commended it that in the verses that follow, God Himself speaking said, Because you did not ask for long life, because you did not ask for military victory, because you did not ask for wealth untold, I will grant what you did ask, but what's more, I'll grant these things that you didn't. As a result of that, Solomon had tremendous wisdom. Wisdom that I've tried to briefly highlight in language you, you will notice on that slide. You may want to re revisit with me at least some of the statements briefly in 1 Kings 3 because of how impressive they are. As a description of the wisdom which Solomon possessed, I would only like to read a few verses and ask you to think with me about them. Again, in chapter number 3, You'll notice again the wording of verse 12. Behold, I, that's God, have done according to thy words, lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither shall thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. There have been a lot of human beings walk upon the face of planet earth since the days of Solomon, and yet nobody either before him or after him, has risen to the point of wisdom and insight and the capability that he enjoyed as a result of God's blessing on that occasion. With that in mind, just look a couple of chapters forward. Chapter 4 of 1 Kings, beginning in verse number 29, "...and God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much." and largeness of heart even as the sand that is on the seashore. 
at this very moment, you and I might ask, how much sand is on the seashore? You and I know the number of grains is extensive, the weight of it is extensive, and yet in comparison, God said, I have given wisdom to Solomon to the extent that it can be compared in largeness like that. Look at the next verse. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. Two of the societies that were recognized and known for their degree in wisdom were not only the peoples of the east, but also that nationality of the Egyptians. And yet Solomon's greatly exceeded both of them. Verse number 31, For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, and Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all nations round about. Solomon's wisdom was such that even in that ancient day when there was no internet, and there was no cell phone, and there was no television, word about his wisdom spread with such fierceness that folks all over the place knew about him. The next verse goes on to say, And he spake three thousand proverbs, and his songs were a thousand and five. May I invite us then to appreciate the fact that this wisdom which Solomon possessed, at least in part, has been kept and preserved for you and me in some of the books that he wrote. Books that not only, of course, he wrote, but in fact have the mark of inspiration. Books like Proverbs. Books like Ecclesiastes, books like the Song of Solomon. All of these, of course, are those that give us an appreciation about the degree of this wisdom that God gave him. Now with that in mind, in chapter number 10, we have one other interesting text reminding us about the extent and the degree of this wisdom which Solomon possessed. Near the end of chapter number 10, I'm sorry, near the beginning of chapter 10, we have an extensive record about the Queen of Sheba who came from at least a reasonable distance and her sole purpose in coming was to imbibe and to appreciate the wisdom of Solomon. It is with that said, verse number 1 of chapter number 10 reads like this, And when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. In light of her expectation and what she had heard relative to his knowledge, she came with hard questions. I'd like to know the wisdom that you would, in fact, enjoin relative to these matters. Now, further parts of that chapter will go on to say he answered some, but not all of her questions. But why don't you and I then note this? We aren't just talking about the wisdom of Solomon. This series touches on the financial advice that he might well give. It is at that point we might well then pause to say, not only did God bless him with wisdom, but he's, I've already noted, blessed him with great wealth. Tremendous wealth. Wealth that had not been enjoyed in times prior by any single individual. And wealth that was so grand and great that 2 Chronicles 1.15 describes it like this. Silver. And you and I know that even in the ancient days, silver was rather precious. It was worth a great deal. And yet, in the days and in the reign of Solomon, silver in Jerusalem was so plenteous 
It was compared to being as plentiful as rocks. Now, in this part of the world, you and I know it well. There's a lot of rocks in Jackson County. And to imagine rocks such that silver was just as plentiful as a rock, you could only imagine the wealth that Solomon had, the wealth that he enjoyed, the wealth that, in fact, was a part of the coffers of the kingdom of Israel under his leadership. The closing of that slide then will then ask us, so what advice would that man give us? If you and I could have a physical audience with Solomon, what advice would you give me for the handling of my finances, given your inspired wisdom and given the experience you have with handling finances? Let's look at a few of these lessons, starting with this one. As I mentioned earlier, this will be a series of lessons, and so before we're finished, there will be a number of them, but let's just look at a few to begin the series tonight. Proverbs chapter 3 will be our first one. A moment ago, this was read for us in our hearing. Brother Dennis shared with us verses 9 and 10 of Proverbs chapter 3. Let me read it again, and then let's note a few comments about it. Honor the Lord with thy substance. And with the first fruits of all thine increase, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. The first and most likely, the most critical of the lessons we shall appreciate throughout the series will be this one. With that which is our substance, and that word would mean my possessions, my monies, the things which otherwise I could say that I have a deed to it. He says, honor the Lord with it. Honor the Lord with thy substance. And some of the thoughts that quickly come from that is this. The substance that you and I might well attach to ourselves. What you and I have the privilege of owning. As you can well tell, the next point on that slide is this one. You and I don't really own it. That is to say... Ultimately, it does it in the final analysis belong to us. It's God's. Honor the Lord with thy substance. Isn't it interesting in verse number 9 and 10, that which is our possessions, our substance, that which are those things that otherwise we would say is ours. It's exceedingly vital that we appreciate as often taught in the Word of God, how that God is the ultimate owner of it. We are but stewards of it, and only then for a little while. Some of the additional verses from Solomon as well as others who amplify this point might well begin in Psalm 24.1. Now remember, this was Solomon's daddy that said this one. As David penned these inspired and powerful words, he said, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and they that dwell therein. Maybe we should revisit that opening phrase, the earth is the Lord's. Everything in it, everything on it. And we have affirmed that, of course, He has that by right of creation. The God of heaven fashioned it. He made it. He created it. In the opening couple of chapters of the book of Genesis, we have that detailed and chronological record of His activity in so doing. He created the earth. He created all those things which are on its surface, be it bodies of water, 
be it the land areas on day number three. You and I can even remember that the animals were created by Him. That second passage in Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, highlight that the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Those animals you and I own, be they cattle, be they sheep, be they dogs or otherwise, you and I are only those who are stewards of these animals. God owns them. They're His creation. He made them. Interestingly enough, you'll note the next one, 1 Corinthians 10. Paul quoted this very idea from Psalm 24. And he used it there to even teach the Corinthians concerning matters of meat offered to idols. That is to say, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Thus, in light of that, that means that bank account that you and I have, or that land that we may own, or those cars in the garage, or perhaps even those possessions in the basement, or the attic, or wherever else they may be. We are only the temporary stewards. They belong to God. The wealth that attaches to them, the matters related to them, they belong to Him. That next point then would read like this. The Bible quickly reminds us then because they're God's and the earth is His footstool, it necessarily means it should be our interest to honor God with these things that are ours because they really belong to Him. And so on the first day of the week, we lovingly give as we've been prospered. We, in fact, rather anxiously look forward to giving back to Him a portion of what He has so richly given to us. That motivates our giving. It reminds us of the connection we enjoy with Him. We're stewards, you see, of that which He's given us. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2, we're told that stewards must be found faithful. And therefore, we with excitement desire to faithfully execute our office as a steward over those things that God has given us. It is the case, and at the bottom of that slide, you and I can readily tell that if you and I fail in this opening part, we have missed the major lesson of the biblical advice concerning economics and concerning finances. But what might be another lesson? Lesson number two. Later on in the book of Proverbs, as we come to chapter 28, we read this rather interesting lesson. It is a rather strongly worded matter. It's verse 6 of that chapter. Better is the poor that walketh in his uprightness than he that is perverse in his ways, though he be rich. Now, I attempted to state that principle, as you can see at the top. Riches, earthly riches, without integrity is worse than poverty. And again, based on that wording, that text that you and I just read, we note the forcefulness and the strength of it. And isn't it true that there are many, I suppose, who wouldn't be so quick to agree with this? They love the thought of the money, and they're kind of excited to acquire it, and rather thrilled to have it, even if it's gotten by way of what's not right, even if it's pursued in ways that are rather missing in matters of integrity. Let's develop some of those points as you can read on that slide. That verse again says, Better is the poor that walketh in his uprightness. 
If you and I are poor from the standard of the earth, and yet if we are doing so in the accompaniment of uprightness and godliness, we are better off, the text says, than a person filthy rich whose riches were gotten in an ungodly way. Now doesn't that cast a strong appreciation about the way that these riches are obtained or the way that that wealth is obtained? Integrity is very important. One's character in the acquiring of these riches is vital. We'd be better off not having the riches if we got them in an unreasonable and ungodly way. Look at some of these further developments. Let's be quick to say it isn't wrong to have money. On occasion, you'll hear people misquote 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. There are some who say money's the root of all evil. That's not right. It's the love of money. That's the root of all evil. God frequently blessed individuals in the Word of God's history with a fair amount of earthly possessions. Abraham was a very wealthy man. And because of his association to Abraham, Lot was a rather wealthy man. Genesis 13. Lot, I'm sorry, Job, of course, was exceedingly well off. That's just a few of those we might otherwise name. But might we ask this, when we ask, how did Job get his wealth? There's no indication that he got it unfairly or that he got it in an ungodly way. And the same is true of Abraham. But maybe we should make this point. The implication of that for us is clear enough. We must be cautious and rather mindful of the means whereby the possessions that we have have been acquired. I must never get them in a dishonorable fashion by running roughshod over the law of God to take advantage of somebody else. To do that, it would be better off for me not to have them. There is a passage, you'll notice it at the bottom, in Jeremiah 17 that is one of the most graphic, one of the most poetic, and one of the strongest wordings on this, on this particular subject. Jeremiah 17, let me read it to you. Verse number 11. As the partridge sitteth on eggs, and hatcheth them not, so he that getteth riches, and not by right, shall leave them in the midst of his days, and at his end shall be a fool. Now the inspired writer pointed out that here's a a bird, a partridge, sitting on eggs that she didn't hatch. And he likens that to someone else who acquires riches that rightly belong to somebody else. And the Word of God says that they will richly, they will quickly disappear and the person will be regarded a fool who does this. Oh, how we must be mindful of understanding our integrity, our character, our connection to God must reign supreme. And the acquiring of riches cannot run roughshod over our character and over staying right with God. Have you ever known of someone who was so enamored with money and riches, they would happily take advantage even by things not right of others to have it? Have you ever known of someone who would move a property boundary because they thought you weren't looking? They wanted the additional three or four feet because they wanted that land, and even though it didn't belong to them, they wanted it badly enough they'd do what was not right to get it. I'd hate to address God on the day of judgment. 
in him bring up to bear the fact you moved the property line when you had no authority. The land wasn't yours. And you moved the property line to have what didn't belong to you. Wouldn't it be awful to go to hell because of that? Wouldn't it be awful to spend all of eternity over moving for a few feet of land that wasn't yours? And yet there are people who do this, and they do it with cars and with other things, even in the workplace. What about lesson three? In addition to these two, what about this one? Now truly, that second one is connected to this one, but since it is mentioned in a different verse, I thought we would at least make reference to this one in its own discussion. The sin of greed. Let's go to Proverbs 15, 27. In the midst of the book, we notice this rather memorable and rather strong statement. He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house. But he that hateth gifts shall live. The person that's greedy of gain, there's our word. This individual who is enamored by and overcome by this love of possessions or money, that is to say, financially related matters. Did you notice it, do, it does quickly say, not only is the person himself troubled, it'll trouble his house. That man that's greedy, his wife's going to suffer. She will have to put up with a stingy codger, one who in fact looks upon money more blessedly and more important than her. And by the same token, if that wife is greedy of gain, her husband's going to suffer. Their children are going to suffer. Those who know them are going to be bothered and troubled by a mindset that looks upon things more importantly than looking upon God. Honor the Lord with thy substance was the statement we learned earlier. And now you'll notice the sin of greed has been highlighted here. He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house. The sin of greed, as it's in fact written here, is something that in fact bothered the children of Israel. There are many examples that might have been listed. I chose to list this one from Ezekiel twenty-two twelve. As God directly addressed the children of Israel, He said, You've been greedy. And for that, among other things, where do you now find yourself? As Ezekiel addressed them, they were in Babylonian captivity. They'd been hauled off from Babylon. And one of the things that had troubled them so, that separated them from the marvelous place that God had been with them, they'd been greedy. They had chosen to pursue after the things in the words of Romans chapter 1, they worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator. They turned their attention, you see, to what God made rather than to one that made it. Is that still a problem for the human family? Can it be an issue with you and me? Oh, it sure can. You see, the devil among the tools in his tool shed is the materialistic matter of, in fact, directing one's attention to what this money can buy and to look upon that grander than anything else. It can be a temptation all of us face to love things more than we love the one that made these things. Needless to say, Solomon in his wisdom pointed out to us, we ought not be greedy. 
Let's not allow the love of money to direct our life and lead us into paths separate and apart from faithfulness to God. Surely, as we close that slide, we might then note this. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 19 and following continue this discussion of greed. So are the ways of every one that is greedy of gain, which taketh away the life of the owners thereof. In a way, I suppose that verse is saying so very much. That person who is greedy of gain, that gain is that person's life. That's what's the most important to him or her. That's what they're searching for. That's what they pursue. And the text there in verse 19 says that's their life. Have you ever known someone that loved money or possessions like that? Money was everything to them. Maybe others who knew them would call them stingy. Maybe others who knew them would easily recognize that they are the kind of person who considers money or other things more valuable than anything else. I would offer the fact that kind of person is to be pitied. That kind of person is to be felt sorry for because their life is that money. And may I ask when you die, how much do you take with you? Not a penny. You see, aren't we told in Ecclesiastes, in fact, that even as Solomon, the same writer there, would point out that you're going to leave every bit of that to somebody else. And who knows how wisely they will use it. Have you ever known instances in which perhaps a fair amount was left to someone else who rather rapidly wasted it, used it in prodigality, used it in rather unwholesome and perhaps even ungodly ways? It can certainly happen. As you and I close that slide, the Bible is filled with examples and perhaps Balaam would be one. You recall that man named Balaam and we encounter him in the book of Numbers? He was in fact one who had the capability of pronouncing blessings or cursings. And the king, Balak, came to him and wanted him, You curse these people of Israel. Numbers chapters 22 to 24. You remember that God said, no, don't curse them. They're my people. And yet, Balaam at first agreed. But then when Balak offered him so very much, I'll offer you wealth untold if you'll come and do this. Balaam said, let me go back and ask God again. He was motivated by money. He was motivated by the fame, the wealth that came with the notoriety of this. And later in the New Testament, Jude verse 11 says, The greediness of Balaam is what motivated him. You'll notice his greed prompted him to disobey God, to do what God had forbidden him to do. Sometimes you and I might find ourselves tempted to do things like that. This third lesson brings us to a fourth one. With regard to the riches, the possessions that we do have, may we never use it to oppress those that are poor. That is to say, to take advantage of the poor by virtue of the money or otherwise the possessions, the substance that's ours. I mention that because you'll notice in Proverbs 13, 23, Solomon reminded us of that. It is in that verse we read, much food is in the tillage of the poor, 
but there is that is destroyed for want of judgment. Now, the way the King James reads that may almost sound a bit confusing. The very message that's being presented is the one that I've entitled. In other words, those who have can in fact use their money and the influence that comes with it to directly oppress those who do not have it. Sometimes you might call that bribery. I've done something I shouldn't do, but I've got a little money. Judge, would you rule in my favor? Judge, would you render a verdict that's in my favor? Despite the fact I oppressed that poor man, he can't pay you, but I can. Would you rule in my favor for a little extra money? Now, the message of that verse, in fact, reminds us that throughout the ages, there are times when there have been those who have desired to use their wealth to take advantage or bargain what by right was not theirs. Really and truly, the person was in the wrong, but due to a bribe or at least some other advantage and offer, the verdict might well have been rendered in their favor. God many times told Moses as well as the people of Israel, don't you render verdicts based on wealth. Don't you render justice based on what a person has to offer by bribe. The text before us would lead us to notice Proverbs 22.16 joins in that discussion like this. A little further in the book. He that oppresseth the poor to increase his riches, and he that giveth to the rich shall surely come to want. God says, I'm taking record of those who would do this. And I will assure you that things will turn around at some point. You'll come to want if you have taken advantage of the poor like this, only to in fact increase your own monetary coffers. An additional verse would be Proverbs 28.8. There, the reading is as follows. He that by usury and unjust gain increaseth his substance, he shall gather it for him that will pity the poor. God says, I take a special notice of those who have a heart for the poor and who will not take advantage of them. And those who do so, I will take of his wealth and give it to those who will benefit those poor. You and I need to be mindful, very cautious, that God takes great care of those who are disadvantaged monetarily. He gave the children of Israel words, You don't go back and glean your field a second time, you leave it for the poor. You leave it for those who are disadvantaged in that way, like Ruth was in the book of Ruth, chapters 2 and 3. This fourth lesson, this one about not oppressing the poor, reminds us, didn't Paul remind us of this too in Galatians 2 verse 10? Of all the words of wisdom that the apostles had bequeathed, the one that he wrote by inspiration there, we were admonished to remember the poor. And with all of that said, one final lesson tonight. The fifth one for this evening asks us this most basic question. Why am I working? You know, as you and I enjoy our job, or in fact survive our job, whatever may be the correct language, am I working for the only purpose to get rich? Is that why I'm doing this? Is it why I get up in the morning and I go to labor this way? Is just so that I can be rich. 
if that's the reasoning, I'd like to offer some more words of wisdom from Solomon. It challenges us in the following way. In Proverbs 23, verse number 4, I know this is further down that slide, but let me at least mention it now. And then we'll develop several points around it. Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. God has blessed us with the capability of work, and He expects us to, in fact, do that. He gave Adam and Eve the job in the garden in Genesis 2.15. You dress and you keep the garden. It's healthy for us to be busy. An idle mind and idle hands, as we're often told in Proverbs 6, are not good. It offers us too much opportunity for the devil to lead us in directions of mischief and slothfulness. God wants us to be industrious. But that industry, as you and I quickly learn, that can be taken much too far. If I'm laboring simply to be rich, I have in fact violated Proverbs 23.4. I have gone against the very matter of the message delivered in a verse like that one, and that Jesus Himself would later state in slightly different language. In fact, could I call to our attention, work has many benefits as we've noted, and among them it allows us the capability of providing for ourselves and our family. When the contribution is taken, one of the statements that's often made by that gentleman, at least in, in the prayer, is we thank God for the capability of, of the work that we do so that we can provide for ourselves and our family. After all, isn't it told that if a man won't work, neither should he eat? 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10. And we're admonished, in fact, about the capacity that relates to that work. But again, you'll notice that we can take a different approach. I get up and I work just for the money. I do it just to get richer and richer. If that's the only reason, then notice some of these statements at the bottom. We will then notice several things are going to not work out so well. In Proverbs 13, verse number 4, this description is given, The soul of the sluggard desireth, and hath nothing but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. God will take care of those that are diligent, those that are industrious. He will provide as He has promised in Matthew chapter 6. There will be a roof over your head, food on your table. Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. That promise has never been lifted or taken away. That promise leads us to Proverbs 28:19. Much closer to the end of the book... For there we read this, He that tilleth his land shall have plenty of bread, but he that followeth after vain persons shall have poverty enough. When you and I till our land, taking care by way of understanding to honor God with our substance, He's promised to make sure we have provision. David would say, I have been young and now I'm old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Psalm 37, verse 25. Labor not to be rich. 
It's at this point, 1 Timothy 6, then verse 10 says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveteth after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I will offer that there are many additional lessons that we're going to see, but tonight says, Quitted our appetite. The first five at least have been seen. And as you and I close that slide, why don't we close the lesson as well by at least quickly revisiting. We've learned five things. When it comes to economic financial advice, everything we have belongs to God. We merely are those who watch over it for a while. Secondly, we highlighted the fact that whatever riches we are blessed to appreciate, must be acquired with integrity. That is to say, with godliness and uprightness, not taking advantage of others, not trying to, in fact, squirm things from them so we can have it. Lesson three, greed is sin. And it will separate us from the God that we ought to love. Lesson four, don't oppress the poor. Don't use wealth or riches or influence otherwise attached thereto to oppress those who have less. There will be a time later in the series when that idea will reappear from a slightly different vantage point. And finally, lesson five. You and I should, of course, labor and work, but not solely for the purpose of getting rich. Because that kind of mentality will lead to problems and difficulties. And Solomon's going to have a lot to say about that. His development will be rather keen as we close this lesson this evening. I hope we've been educated somewhat due to the Bible on finances. Now, we may not have a degree from Tennessee Tech in business or accounting, but we have had the finest teacher the world has ever known because the Word of God contains the wisdom which no man can do any better and as you and I then think about our finances, perhaps in this year, I trust that we'll be motivated to appreciate the attachment to them and the blessing that they bring, but always under the umbrella of faithfulness to God. If there's anyone in this assembly tonight that would wish to make a public response to the gospel's invitation, it may not be anything in your life connected to finances in particular, but it might be related to that indirectly, or it might be related to other matters, but you know that things are not well with your soul, and you want to make that right tonight, or better still, you want the Lord to make it right in your life. We want you to know that if, if you were to walk down this aisle, we don't look down on you. It's not our business to judge in that light. As you come to God, He will look into your heart and forgive you of anything, if you'll just repent and confess it, that would stand between Him and you. And if we could be of assistance in that way tonight, it would be our joy and it would be our delight to do that while together we stand and while we sing.